Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear from Dr. Leonard Milodno about emotional, how feelings shape our thinking. This includes such emotions as hunger. Yes, hunger is an emotion and not just a physiological response. It disappears in the presence of danger. Other emotions are tied together, like romantic love and attachment. Then, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us who may medically qualify to go into space. Well, it all depends. You may be surprised by his answers. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed National Medal of Technology winner Ray Kurzweil about his book, How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. In it, he writes... The story of human intelligence starts with a universe that is capable of encoding information. We have a world based on information, and he's not talking about the digital kind. There's a lot of debate as to how we ended up in the universe that can encode information. Uh, some people use the anthropic principle that if it wasn't the case, we wouldn't be here and wouldn't be talking about it. But th that allowed evolution and evolution has evolved more and more complex creatures that eventually evolved a nervous system. And those nervous systems ultimately evolved a neocortex, which is capable of thinking in hierarchies to reflect the natural hierarchy of the world. This first emerged in mammals. It was the size of a postage stamp and as thin as a postage stamp and little rodents. Uh, not very noticeable, but it allowed these animals to actually learn new skills that were complicated and hierarchical uh, without having to go through thousands of years of biological evolution to change their behavior. But then, 65 million years ago, there was this cataclysmic event called the Cretaceous Extinction Event, and we can see archaeological evidence of that everywhere in the world. Something happened very dramatic to change the environment very quickly, and uh, animals, non-mammalian species that did not have a neocortex died out. Many of them did, uh, and that's when mammals took over their this ecological niche. And to anthropomorphize, biological evolution said, hey, this neocortex is pretty useful, and they start growing it uh, as mammals got more complex. And by primates, it was no longer flat. It was very convoluted. If you, you know, know what the brain of a primate looks like, it has many ridges and convolutions to increase its surface area. It's still a very thin structure. If you were to stretch out a human neocortex, it'd be about the size of, size of a table napkin and just as thin. But because of its, all of these curvatures and convolutions, it's about 80% of the brain. And it's where we do our thinking, and we think in, in hierarchies. And the big innovation in, in Homo sapiens is we have this big forehead. We could squeeze in more neocortex, and that was the enabling factor to, that permitted the development of language. Art and science and music, uh, no other invention, technology, no other species does that. Other primates began to do a little bit of it. They have some primitive language and tool-making skills, but only humans can really build this, this fantastic hierarchy. And now we're actually using that scientific ability to understand 
the best example of human intelligence, which is the human brain. And it's really only in the last couple of years that we can see inside a human brain with enough precision to see what's going on. And we can see our brain create our thoughts. We can see our thoughts create our brain. That's key to how the neocortex works. The connections between these different pattern recognition modules, which is part of my thesis, uh, that represents the hierarchy of our concepts, uh, we create ourselves from the moment we're born and even before that. We're laying down these this conceptual hierarchy from very primitive recognitions like the crossbar in a capital A or the edge of an object up to things like, she's pretty, you know, that was ironic. They're actually done by the same recognizers, except that those high-level recognizers exist at the top of this conceptual hierarchy. And the hierarchy is created by actual wiring of actual dendrites and, and axons between these different modules. Uh, I estimated we have about 300 million pan recognizers. They each have about 100 neurons. So the basic unit is not a neuron. It's a, it's a module of about 100 neurons that can recognize a pattern and that can build these connections to other modules. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with Ray Kurzweil, the author of How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. Today, Ray Kurzweil is the chief futurist at Google. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, don't get all emotional about this, but Dr. Leonard Mladeno talks about the science behind how our feelings shape our thinking. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about how much more we know today about the impact of human physiology in space travel. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Leonard Mladeno. Len, welcome back to Tech Nation. Hey, happy to be here. Nice to see you again. Now, we recently had Antonio Damasio talking about his latest book, Feeling and Knowing, and he was saying that knowing starts with feeling. But once you have feelings, what happens? Well, I would say that knowing and feeling work together. I wouldn't say that feeling comes, well, temporally, it, perhaps it comes some microseconds before knowing, but, but feeling and knowing, that is, emotion and rationality work together. And there's no really real separating of the two. That's one of the points of my book, is that they work together. What an emotion is, is a state of mind. It's a state of information processing. The brain is an information processor. You, you take in uh, information about the environment and about your own body and what you have to accomplish to survive. And you're constantly making calculations about what you should do. So each emotion is a state that's triggered by things going on in your environment to put your that kind of processing in a certain direction. 
anxiety has to do with the possibility of something bad happening in the future or the near future. So when you're in a state of anxiety, you're in a state of heightened alertness about what might happen and about how important your, your mental calculations are in order to preserve yourself. So one of the test flights, uh, so I, I guess I should back up and say Richard Branson has a company to take people into space, uh, space tourists, and they're developing a spacecraft to do that. And in one of the test flights, they, the two pilots went up in, in their vehicle and there were certain protocols that they had to follow in order to, to perform their mission. And one of the pilots did uh, re release an air brake really too, a few seconds too soon and the craft broke up and disintegrated and one of the fellows was killed and uh, the other one survived. It was severely injured. And, uh, and what happened? Well, what happened was that the spacecraft that they were flying uh, was not really built in a way that maintains a natural environment. It was shaking violently, and that was just normal for it, but it was shaking, shaking violently in a way that we don't normally experience in life. And scientists have found that when you're in an environment like that, it, it affects your thinking. And, it, and even though your emotions are, uh, one of the points of my book are that your emotions are good they're they're not counterproductive they're they're necessary for your thinking there are situations especially extreme situations that they're not really built for where they can be counterproductive and this is one of them scientists have found studying other animals that when you're in a high high stress unnatural environment like this pilot was and you make uh, you, your perceptions and your decisions uh, are not ideal and so in this case the the environment that the uh, pilot was in caused him to uh, caused a certain anxiety and caused him to make a bad decision and deploy the brake too soon. Uh, it's a kind of interesting that a scientist did a, a, an independent experiment, which really almost perfectly reflects that situation where they took bees and they trained bees to make a decision about which source of food to go to. I won't get into it because it's complicated, but they, then they took those bees that, that knew how to explore and, and make these choices between sources of food. And they, and they actually shook them violently, very much like this spaceship. And they found that the bees made similar bad decisions based on their anxiety. So even insects experience emotion. So if we extrapolate from that and we're a high anxiety person, we got to believe it's affecting our decisions. Right. So if you're, if you're high anxiety in the sense that uh, you have an abnormally abnormal abundance of anxiety, not just the normal anxiety that, that people have that's warranted and, and helpful in their thinking, that can get in, in the way. But anxiety is not a, a, a bad uh, emotion because there's a reason for anxiety. I tell the story in the book, for example, about one person who lost his health insurance and became very anxious about uh, getting sick and in particular about the moles on his body because uh, he had his uh, family had a history of a melanoma. And because of that anxiety, he went to his doctor about a certain mole, which did turn out to be cancerous and was fought, found early and was removed. And if, if that person had no anxiety about bad things that could happen uh, physically, then he would have he would have died from that. So that, that's that's the purpose that the emotion serves. Now, we often tell stories of situations where it didn't work out so well, because those are dramatic stories and people like to tell them. But in 99% of the cases, the emotion is there for a good reason and it helps your thinking. 
Now, other things that that drive our thinking or our thought, uh, you were pointing out that hunger drives us not just to get food, but also to procure non-food objects. What do we know about that and how do we know it? Well, hunger is a what they call a homeostatic emotion, which is a, a, used to be considered a drive, a, something that's different from an emotion. But a more modern way of looking at it is to include hunger in the in the in the catalog of emotions. And obviously, hunger has a purpose uh, connected to your the state of your body. And when you when you need uh, when your body needs nourishment, it creates this emotion to to make you get the nourishment. So the way you you interpret uh, the sensory information and the uh, things that are going on around you is is colored by that need for 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 food and scientists have found that it, it, that a state of hunger not only it's a more general state than than driving you just towards food but it just in general drives you to acquire things and and that's that's typical of your emotions that we used to think that our emotions are very specific to a certain situation and for a certain goal, but we're finding now that they're that they're more general. That the, that the, the the state of, of thinking that you're in in an emotion and the purpose the emotion serves is is more general than that. It's not just hunger. It's disgust, for example. Uh, disgust is not only disgust over rotten food or or uh, animals that 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 look like they're rotting or, or not they're unhealthy to approach but it's also there's moral disgust there's other types of disgust that that play a role in our lives and it uses the same mental apparatus you know with respect to emotion you quote los angeles psychiatrist george cohen you say every person is unique physically and intellectually but also emotionally like what is an emotion an emotion is a is a is a mode of operation of your brain so if we think of the brain you should think of your brain as an information processing system, not not exactly a computer. I mean, it's very different from the computers that we build, but it does take in information through your senses and it, pro- it processes it in light of your goals and what you need to stay alive and to thrive and in light of, 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 of the knowledge of your past experience. So your brain is at every moment uh, of time is integrating your your goals, your past experience, your knowledge, your beliefs, and sensory information that's coming in. Now, it's not doing that in a vacuum, however. It's doing that in a certain mode of operation, just like your iPhone, for example, has a low power mode. So when, when the battery is almost gone, your iPhone changes the way it figures out what to do based on the, the need to conserve energy. Your brain does the same thing. So whether you're hungry or whether you're fearful or whether you're in love, whatever situation is, is, is going on around you uh, that, that, that warrants a different mode of processing, the emotion puts your brain in a different mode of processing so that when your brain is calculating what your actions should be, it's, it's, it's changing the way it weighs the sensory input and the way it weighs your, your past experience. So, for example, if you're in a fearful state but your body needs nourishment, you're not going to feel the hunger. If you're walking down the street and you're hungry and suddenly something happens to alarm you and you think someone might be coming after you, you will the hunger will immediately disappear and you'll go into a fearful mode. And all of a sudden, this fearful mode of, of mental processing, all sounds and sights, even little ones that you may not have noticed in, in, in the other mode of processing now become important. You notice them, you, you give them more weight and you, and you, and you, 
you give them more weight and you act accordingly. So each emotion is a way of, of adjusting the way your brain is processing information at any given time. That's really a different way of looking at it, Len. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, that, that, well, you know, people used to think that uh, they thought there were, there were six. This is based on Darwin. So the, in the history of emotion, the, the real first theory, fundamental scientific theory, came from Darwin. And he believed that there were six basic emotions, uh, anger, fear, happiness, sadness, surprise, and, and that each emotion had a certain triggers and caused certain specific behavior. So it's like a computer program. Uh, you see a bear, you get scared, uh, your, your blood pressure rises, your heart beats faster. Uh, he, that's the way he felt that all emotions work. And he thought that, that those were very useful for animals, but they were no longer useful for humans because we have rationality. And in the years after Darwin, scientists started to assign specific brain regions for each emotion. And there was a very neat package. This is called the classical theory of emotion, and it's totally wrong. Okay? <laughs> it, it, it's kind of interesting. It, it, it's similar to the reality, just like Newton's laws are similar to, to, to the reality. They describe the world at a certain level pretty well. But now we know that that's not the way the world is. We need quantum theory. And, and scientists who study emotion are learning that this simple idea of emotions is wrong. There's no, uh, there's no sharp demarcation line between the different emotions, for instance, between fear and anxiety. Uh, it's more of a spectrum. Think of, if you see a rainbow, we have certain names for colors, red, orange, green, blue, but a rainbow is a continuum and you could actually pick anywhere on the rainbow and, and, and name that, call that the color, have as many as you want. And they don't have to be the same ones that we normally think of. And, and that's kind of how uh, emotions work. So the, the the idea that... So you don't need a word to have an original emotion. You just may not have named it yet. You may not have named it. And when you call emotion fear, not only uh, is there something between anxiety and fear, but but fear itself has different forms. That It's not just one thing. The, the scientists have found, for example, that your fear of suffocation that they've induced in people, this sounds kind of nasty, but by giving them uh, a high carbon dioxide concentration uh, to breathe, that, that induces a fear of suffocation and that that has different mental pathways as your fear of, say, a, a scorpion that they put on your arm. And they can actually dissociate these in the lab. And they, they did an experiment on someone with a certain kind of brain damage who could feel one type of fear and not the other. So so yeah, you, where we what we call an emotion, it, it, it varies from culture to culture. Uh, some cultures, uh, there's one culture I talk about in the book that doesn't have sadness in, in their vocabulary. Not that they don't feel sadness. They feel the same stuff we feel, but they chose to name it. It's uh, something to, to, to make a category somewhere else. Like we might have a color yellow and a color green. Another culture might have a color yellow green. And... and you know, that that in modern society has more or less evened out at this point because we have such uh, commu uh, communication and contact with each other. But if you look at at primitive societies that live in the wild still, and, and which are there's very few of, but over the last decades, they've been able to study some of them. And, and you'll find that they have different words and different ways of categorizing things. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Leonard Melodino. With a Ph.D. in theoretical physics, he's been a member of the faculty at Caltech 
and for the last 20 years, a prolific author. You might know him from such books as The Drunkard's Walk and Subliminal. He's here today with Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. Well, I have to say, I was thrilled to see that you had all these emotional profile tests, and I mean plural. (laughs) Relating to what you said earlier, anxiety and fear, those are related. What's, What's really the difference between them, and why are they in the same test? Well, anxiety is an emotion where you are concerned with something bad that could happen in the future. Could happen, could happen. Could happen, could happen. And fear is the same thing with respect to something that's happening now. Now, they sound, when I say it like that, very different, but they're actually not because, I mean, there is no sharp line between them because uh, there are situations where you're not sure if something is happening or not. You're walking through the woods and you see a bear, you have fear. You're walking through the woods and you think about someone's story of how a bear jumped out and and ate somebody and you have anxiety. But you're walking through the woods and there's something rustling in a distance or moving and it's dark and you're not sure what it is. You have something between fear and anxiety because it's only fear if if if, if you identify it as a bear. It's only anxiety if you know it's not a bear. So what is it? You know, so this, again, as with most emotions, there's a spectrum. So you say, I, I don't quite know what I feel, but I'm kind of this and I'm kind of that. That's actually accurate. Yeah, that is accurate. And, and it, it helps to have these category names for emotions because it, it just like as in all our thinking, it helps to have language and term, terminology as we, as we think about things. But we can't take the, the the emotion categories that literally because they, as I say, they're not that well they're not that well defined, and and there are a lot more emotions than people used to believe. Also, uh, there there are people used to believe there were six fundamental emotions, and now we we've added in the homeostatic emotions like pain and uh, hunger. We've added in social emotions like awe, embarrassment, and we realize that 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 there's a quite a a large uh, universe of different emotions that we all feel, and they all each have to play their own role in, in affecting our thinking. So here's another emotional profile test you have, um, your shame and your guilt. How does that work together? It's all in one test. <laughs> well, they, so what, what is, what is shame and guilt? Uh, what, what is the role of shame and guilt? So shame is, is what you feel when you, you feel that you've done something. Well, these, first of all, I should say these are social emotions. So um, they have to do with how you relate to other people. And so shame, ha- shame is when you feel that you've done something wrong and other people are going to frown on you. <laughs> uh, guilt is when you feel like you've done something wrong, but you're frowning on yourself. So they're, 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 they're very similar. I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I shouldn't. Yeah. You you know, you don't necessarily feel shame. Maybe nobody even knows what you did, but you know it. And the purpose of the social emotions is to help us interact with each other. Humans are a social species. And and as we were evolving, we only, our species only survived because we could live in, in small groups and help each other. Uh, as individuals, we probably wouldn't have made it as a species, but we developed language and cooperation, and that allowed us to act as a larger organism in groups of 20 or 50. And in order for that larger organism to actually function, you need 
social emotions like shame and guilt and so forth. If people never felt guilt or, or shame, they, 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 might, they might not act cooperatively with other people. They, you might steal someone's food and, and they'll die because you've been eating. You don't, you know, you're, maybe you're stronger than them and you're just taking their food because you want to eat more and they're going to die. And what, So what stops you from doing things like that are, are social emotions. So they're very useful in helping us uh, work together in society. What's good about the tests are first, they, by, by reading the test questions, you learn about what we mean by these emotions, right? If you're not sure about the shame and guilt, for example, and what distinguishes them, you just, just read the questions in the questionnaire and, and you'll see about what they're probing and you'll get a better feeling for it. But also, I felt that when you're reading the book and you're learning about different emotions, it's good uh, to, in, order to, in, order, in order to connect to the, to the ideas of about the different emotions, it's good to understand yourself and how, how, where you stand. Okay, here's another pair. Anger and aggression. So anger means that somebody did something that is harmful to you. And that, 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 that sort of thing uh, stimulates anger. And aggression is, I want to hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they go together because, again, you have to think about when we lived in the wild. But if there are people who are going to do things in their favor and, and at your expense... Uh, for you, for you to have a better chance of survival, you need to be able to stop it, to stop that. And so, the, the types of things that allow you to resist that are anger and aggression. So, if you become angry at the person, then you're more likely to resist what they're doing. And if you become aggressive toward the person, they're less likely to keep doing it. So, th these are the kinds of uh, social emotions that that were important as we uh, as we interact with each other. And, you know, as you say, you know, aggression is a response uh, to anger, to your own anger. Um, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's going along a continuum here. Um, but when someone's angry with you, what diffuses anger? So this is a very, very interesting question about what diffuses or, or any emotion or what is the time, uh, what is the time course of an emotion? When something in the environment happens to trigger an emotion, it, it, it doesn't go away immediately. That's one of the important good things about emotions. Uh, if you behaved only reflexively and you're walking, let's say, through the woods and there's a sound and you are afraid that it's a, it might be a bear and you react to that and you're very careful and then the emotion doesn't linger, you keep walking 20 steps and this time the bear eats you. But instead you have an emotion that lingers and you continue to be in that altered state, what, 20 steps down and for the next half hour or hour or something, because just that's that danger could still be present once it's once it's sensed that you can hold it you can hold the emotion so one of the one of the yeah so one of the important properties of emotion is that they don't disappear right away but they do dissipate over time and and it, it, it it's just a a decay in 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 the strength of that state over time so if you're if you're angry it, there's a natural decay as other things are happening in your environment and that, that take your mind off that, 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 you've, that emotion diminishes. Some people have a disorder where that doesn't happen, and that's not good because uh, emotions are supposed to be persistent, but they're, not, they're supposed to decay eventually. Or, or, or after you, you've experienced life for five days, you'll have all those emotions and you're carrying with you. So they have a certain natural time course, and it's important that that's not zero. It's also important that it's not infinity. <laughs> I'm speaking with Dr. Leonard Melodino about his book, 
emotional, how feelings shape our thinking. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the medical physiology of humans in space and who could qualify. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Dr. Leonard Melodino, the author of Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. I have to say that with this interview, we're probably going to hear from the Bear Appreciation Society that <laughs> they're, telling, they're getting a bad rap here. But it's just an example. It's just an example. Most of us will never see. Yeah, I probably overused it's that. It's good, though. It's good because it relates. <laughs> I have to credit what... Well, William James is the one who brought bears into the study of emotions. So he he talked about bears in, back in the 19th century, and and that that kind of example has stuck. So I should uh, bears, muggers, thieves. I guess I, I mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we'll stick with the bears. You know, we don't want to. There's probably a muggers okay. appreciation society. <laughs> well, there is an amazing story about the bears that I tell in the book that that shows you how uh, emotions affect your your thinking. There were these two guys who were uh, going hunting. And they hadn't seen a bear. They, they, they made it through the whole day and they were exhausted and they were heading home and it got started getting dark and they, they started to get afraid that, that they would stumble upon a bear and, and have problems. And uh, as they were, uh, as time was going on, they were, they were very fearful and they came upon uh, something that they saw in the distance that was moving and it was late at night. So it was hard to tell exactly what it was, but it was moving. It was making noises and they were afraid that it was a bear and they shot it and it turned out to be a tent. And there were two, uh, there was a young couple. It's a sad story making love inside the tent and they mistook that for a bear. And in the trial, they told that story and they were um, convicted of uh, negligent homicide. I think it was a charge. And, because no one could believe that. But I, I believe that 
because I know that fear is a mode of operation, uh, as a mode uh, uh, of thinking, um, information processing that your brain can be in. And as they were processing the information that was coming from the noise, sights, and the sounds, and it was dark, it wasn't very clear, and, and they had a very high fear of running into a bear, it's, it's um, easy to see how that mistake could have happened. And it's hard to understand if you don't understand emotion. But if you do understand how emotion works, it's, it's not an unnatural mistake to make. I was talking at one point with my uh, uh, I have a research partner, and, and I don't know, we were talking about some situation that had just developed, and he just turned to me and he goes, you know, Moira, it's not always about you. <laughs> this is actually about this thing over here. And I was actually, you know, putting all these things together, you know, with real anxiety. And I was saying, oh, what are we going to do about this? And, oh, they couldn't have. And it was really, I was processing all the information in the context that I had. I think it's a very human, human trait. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a very human, uh, we have the... A, a, a larger set of emotions and a more nuanced emotions, but all animals have emotions, all, at least all the way down to fruit flies. Uh, scientists have uh, done experiments and identified emotions even in fruit flies. It's because emotions, are, they're very important because they allow you not to react reflexively to the environment, but a little bit in a little bit more sophisticated manner than just this happens, I'm going to do that. Uh, they allow you to take into account more information and to have a, a time delay where you might not do it right away. Uh, and these allow much more flexible and sophisticated behavior. Now, here's, here's the final profile that, uh, that I was a little surprised to see, but I could see how it worked. Uh, you write that anthropologists tell us that romantic love is a very old emotion. So your profile has a spectrum of Romantic love and attachment. Right. So, well, what is a romantic, you know, again, so love is like fear and every other emotion, a very complicated thing. We, people are probably less surprised to hear that love is complicated. They, they know that there's a romantic love and there's love for your children. There's love for friends. Uh, with fear, they tended to, people probably were more likely to think it was monolithic, which it's not. But love is another example of there's a whole spectrum of different kinds of love, and we happen to give it the same the same name. But what is it for? Well, each type of love is for something that is different, it serves a different purpose. But romantic love in our society is because humans are are uh, come in pairs, right? And, and this is helpful for raising kids, which is the purpose of your species, right, is to have kids and get them to the age where they can have kids and so forth. Otherwise, the species becomes extinct. And some species are, are singular. And so they, they're, they're, uh, the, 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 pair, the father impregnates the mother and goes off and the mother raises the, the, the babies. Or in some cases, the father stays uh, with the same mother, but still doesn't take, partake in raising the babies. And in some cases, that's all a, it's a cooperative thing. And for, for humans, it's cooperative that uh, it, it works better if you have two parents. And so romantic love is an emotion that encourages that. Uh, it encourages the, the couple to stay together. Uh, love, maternal love or paternal love encourages you to spend all that time and effort and hardship taking care of the damn little things that you created because you know if you've had a kid you know that you're 
up at five in the morning, three in the morning. It's uh, it's annoying. You have to, they're sick. You got to take care of them. You you got to feed them. Of course, you've got to clothe them. There's this it, 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 and and as you get older, it becomes a physical hardship to do all these things. You can't. It's hard to keep up with them. Why do people just not you know leave them? If I had a pet rock that required so much uh, effort, I would put the pet rock outside and the, return it to the quarry, right? But you don't do that with your, with your kids. And, and because if, if our species or some other uh, primate species had developed that did that, it wouldn't have lasted very long, right? Because the, the kids would have died and they would become extinct. So uh, all these emotions have their own purposes. So it's not just romantic love. It's like, are you capable of attachment? Are you capable of attachment? But you're not really capable of romantic love. I mean, it's just, it's all on this sort of continuum. Well, so attachment is an aspect of, of, of love of all sorts that psych- psychologists have identified. Right. And, and this uh, inventory that I found uh, focused on that aspect of attachment. So it's interesting to look again at that at those questions, because they'll show you the role that attachment plays in in the romantic love. But love is about attachment, right? That's why you have romantic love. It's so you don't abandon your partner. And that partner doesn't abandon you. (laughs) Well, because the same applies to both partners, right? So so uh, you stay together for that for that reason. You you feel better being with that person. So you stay there. And that way you have a partner to help you get through uh, whatever the, you know, I don't want to say a bear. So uh, <laughs> whatever predator is coming or food Not shortage, a bear. water, Not a bear. <laughs> wa- water shortage, if it's cold, you can snuggle up together. I mean, there's a lot of advantages that you, and again, in the larger group, there's, there's love for your friends. And because uh, humans didn't just exist in pairs, they really existed in groups of, uh, I think it was 20 to 50, that, that's that order of magnitude, uh, size of groups. And that was the ideal size when we were nomads. Now, I may have misspoke because I said the the final profile, I meant the final profile where you're weighing, you know, where are you on this spectrum? Um, uh, the final one that I wanted to talk about was, are you happy? You know, it's like, gee, am I happy? Aren't I happy? Uh, you're right. Your DNA determines your susceptibility to being happy. What does that mean? Well, for all our emotions, r- really. So, we each are capable of having a wide spectrum of feelings. And at a certain level, we're all identical in that sense, because if you compare your emotional profile, let's say to mine, from the point of view of someone who's looking at different species, fruit flies, dogs, bears, bacteria, we're virtually the same, you and I, just like our DNA is virtually the same if you're comparing it to other animals. But but if you compare me to you, to other people within the human race, you'll find that there are individual differences within that tolerance of being within, you know, within the range that our species has, uh, there are individual differences. And some of us, uh, because of our genetic makeup, are, are more... Uh, uh, likely to feel anger in a given situation. Now, as I should say, not just our genetic makeup, it's also our upbringing, but we're become more likely to feel uh, one emotion versus another in a given situation. So some people are more susceptible to happiness and some are less. Well, well what, and what is the purpose of happiness is a, is a question that one might ask. Why would humans have happiness at all? We generally don't have traits that are not useful for survival in one way or another, or weren't useful in the past. 
And what happiness does, the, when, you're, when your brain is processing information and you're in a happy state, it, it does a wider, uh, it, it, has a, it opens up, it has a wider, it has a wider range of, what it, of the way it thinks, of, of what it, how it processes, of things that it considers. Uh, researchers have found that uh, they call it um, broaden and build because if you have if you're in a sad situation you tend to focus on the thing that makes you sad and if you're happy you tend to focus on the world around you and what what could change and you're more creative so happiness plays a, an important role uh, in in our society because uh, being exploratory and creative is, is very useful I mean not just in today's society where a lot is done for us, but in in the past, as we were living in the wild and we had to find our own food and water, it was important to have exploratory individuals around who would find that next watering hole, so that when this one dried up, we, we didn't all die trying to find the next one. Because this person who's very happy and exploratory, tra la la, dancing around and found one yesterday or last week, right? <laughs> I think it's very interesting. I think it's a very interesting uh, idea. I mean, I found it very reflective to say, yeah, I sort of, you know, this sort of tells you what's your what's your happiness set point, you know, and then, of course, you know, circumstances can make you less happy and, and more happy. But uh, yeah, where are you on that? And so, uh, again, I'm, uh, I'm just stuck here in about, you know, 30, 40 pages of a whole book, uh, which is terrific. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, I I wanted to go uh, into one more place um, under managing emotions. You know, I was assuming you were talking about just managing your own emotions, but one of them had to do, but, but one aspect that I, I was taken with was the idea of how our emotions as social beings in a group or just one-on-one, um, how, what they mean. And you were talking about the idea of emotional contagion. Let's go there. So because people, because humans are a social species and we have to interact with each other, it's important that, that we're sensitive to other people's emotions and that we react to them in a, uh, in a coherent way and in a social collective way. And that's really the basis of uh, what psychologists call emotional contagion uh, amongst humans. So that if you're with people who are happy, for example, you're sitting in a room with two strangers waiting uh, for the psychology experiment to begin. It's okay. A typical situation in psychology labs. <laughs> and those other two people are in a good mood. You will have a tendency to have your mood elevate based on that. If they're in an angry mood, you will tend to be, to, to be more grumbly and more negative. It's it's a uh, it's a trait that we all have as part of our, our social makeup th that we tend to uh, adopt uh, the uh, emotions of those around us, and that's helpful with regard to us acting as a collective, which has been important in our evolution that we act as a collective. Uh, and so uh, that's that's emotional contagion. It's interesting. I just copied uh, just a few lines from the book. It's as one of your examples is you chat with a colleague. You notice you feel a bit uncomfortable. You're becoming anxious. As you walk away, you remember you were feeling fine before you started this <laughs> chat. And you realize your colleague often has this effect on you. Um, and it's like, 
yeah, there are some people I talk to, I always feel better after I talk to them, you know, or I feel no matter what we're talking about or, oh boy, you know, the old, uh, in our old, uh, uh, younger days, she'd say, uh, uh, some people are downers, man. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I was like, just thinking oh, that some people are downers. They're downers, and I I think it's so amazing. It's like there there is, you know, when we take care of ourselves, you know, just knowing that can really help you take care of yourself as well as take care of your group. Notice what's going on in your group. Well, this is one of those takeaways from the book, because uh, when I write a book, I like it to not only be the science, but something you take in, in your life, because you're learning about emotions to learn about yourself and how you might uh, be happier or thrive. And one of the lessons is this, that you look at the, you look at the circle of people you're in. They, people, scientists have done studies. Uh, there was a very famous study that I quoted in the book, and um they find that people who are in a circle with other, uh, with people in their circle are happier, they're probably, they're, there's a correlation, they're happier. So hap- people who are in a social network with other happy people tend to be happier. And people with less happy people tend to be less happy. Likes congregate with likes. But the, these scientists, have, they did a very clever experiment uh, studying the time development of this and found that it, it, it's, it's causal. It's not just likes attract likes. Like you like happy people, so they stick together. And the sad people who like to complain, they stick together. What they've actually found, that's not how it happens. If you take one of the sad people and, and, and transplant them into a happy social network, they get happier. So that's very important. And so it's interesting to look at the people around you. And I'm not saying, you know, dump your friends who, who aren't <laughs> happy, but just in general, Keep in mind that it might be better to go out more with those people who are a little bit who are, who are a little bit happier and, and more optimistic about things, uh, and uh, might rub off on you. Well, I remember on the occasion of her hundred and third birthday, we asked Tachanina, you know, do you have any advice for us? And she said, "Stay away from mean people." That was it. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> yeah, hundred and three years, right. she learned something. <laughs> And they found in another study that uh, they, there was a study of the nuns uh, that they did over, I think, 40 or 50 years. And they, uh, would, in that study, uh, they gave, uh, they asked nuns to write essays about the, their lives. Uh, I, I guess they may have been at the time students, uh, seminary students. And, and somehow these essays got preserved. And the people in that study were followed for other reasons, not, not because of these essays, but it was a longitudinal study where they were following the health of these women for 40 or 50 years. And uh, at some point, after many, many decades, they came upon this box of all these old essays that they had written at the very beginning. And by now they had, uh, they had uh, data on uh, life expectancy data because many decades had passed. And so they, they had uh, some, uh, they, they sent the essays out to be analyzed for for happiness, for which ones indicate a happier person versus less happy by a group of objective people who had no idea what, what this was all about. So they got those ratings done in an objective way. And then they found that they correlated to life expectancy, that the people who are happier were the ones who lived longer. So 
it's a good thing. <laughs> Happiness is a good thing. <laughs> Not only is it uh, feel good, but it's uh, it's important for a, a long life. And <laughs> Well, Len, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Please come back and see us anytime. Well, thanks. Thanks, Barbara. I had, I had fun as always. And yeah, I hope to be back soon with my next book. <laughs> my guest today is Leonard Milano. His latest book is Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. It's published by Pantheon. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Please don't give up on you yourself going into space in your lifetime. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us much, much more is known about humans in zero-gravity environments. Well, Daniel, uh, you always surprise me. I didn't think we were going to talk about going to space, and here we are. Tell us. Well, the final frontier, Moira. I, I grew up as a space geek. Uh, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, probably went to the Air and Space Museum uh, 100 plus times. And when I was a, a wee lad, I was lucky to be at the Apollo 17 launch, the, the last uh, manned mission to the moon. And years later, when I was a Stanford medical student, I even met Gene Cernan, the commander of that mission, when I was uh, doing an aerospace medicine rotation at Johnson Space Center. So I've been lucky to be involved in the space world from even going to International Space University as a medical student to helping design Mars missions uh, and to doing work at NASA Ames on, on countermeasures to space uh, adaptive deconditioning. So it's near and dear to my heart, and it sort of played an interesting role in my my healthcare uh, medical trajectory. I even joined the Air National Guard as a flight surgeon so I could uh, uh, fly in fighter jets and, and pull nine Gs. So um, it's an interesting time now to see the evolution of technology uh, touch uh, space. Obviously, we're now in the time of SpaceX, you know, uh, gearing to launch folks to, to, to Mars, theoretically, in the next uh, decade. Uh, other companies like Bigelow and Blue Origin and Sierra Space Company are all private companies going to be getting humans uh, more and more off into space. And so it's interesting to think about the medical applications, who gets to go and, and what are the sort of limitations and challenges on some of those journeys. Well, let's talk about some of those recent journeys. You know, we're talking about Blue Horizon, uh, Blue Origin, SpaceX. I mean, who's going where and what is it doing physiologically? Well, it's one thing if you're flying on Virgin Galactic and you get three minutes of weightlessness or even on Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin and you're up there for eight minutes. I think uh, that's enticing, but it doesn't have a lot of medical challenges. You pull some Gs uh, and you certainly need to be prepared for the mission. Uh, you know, even more impressively, SpaceX flew, you know, this uh, fall of 2021, you know, four, quote unquote, civilian astronauts uh, uh, funded by a billionaire named Jared Isaacman uh, with a crew of all civilians, including a 27-year-old physician's assistant named Haley Arsenault, who herself was a pediatric oncology patient uh, when she was 11 or 12, cured of her osteosarcoma and flew to space. And they had three days in orbit. And they actually did report some pretty common medical issues like uh, what's called space adaption sickness, basically motion sickness for the first day or two. And I think there are also some challenges with their uh, with their restroom. <laughs> but, you know, that's the you're seeing that basically pretty mere mortals, including, you know, someone who was a cancer patient was the first to fly who has a prosthetic, you know, in her leg uh, can get into low Earth orbit. But it gets much more challenging when you talk about, you know, months or, or years on orbit. And there have been astronauts and cosmonauts on the space station for for over a year. But when we talk about going to Mars, uh, there's a lot more to think about, uh, including 
you know, uh, the, the trip there, which is, can be a long one, uh, months on end with uh, no gravity potentially. Uh, when you are on Mars, you only have uh, about a third of Earth's gravity and the body changes in the, in the zero G environment. Uh, you end up, uh, your cardiovascular system doesn't have to work as hard. Fluid shifts upwards. Your bones aren't stressed with gravity. Um, muscles can waste away. Um, so those are just the things from microgravity, let alone the challenges of, you know, radiation that can happen in when you're out of, you know, low earth orbit, uh, beyond the Allen belt, uh, there could be solar storms. Uh, plus, you know, not to mention if you're talking about a three-year mission to Mars and back or longer, some of the mental health and psychological, psychological changes. So, um, lots of interesting challenges and a lot of work that's been gone to, to think about mitigating them. Frontiers have always been very dangerous places. Yeah, and we learn a lot from from challenging ourselves. Uh, in fact, you know, even we always like to think about the spinoffs from the space program. A lot of the the, the medical uh, platforms, for example, to send Neil Armstrong's EKG, you know, from landing on the moon, that was possible then. Now, you know, fifty years later, we're able to start to do that from our smartwatches and phones. But some of that technology was pushed by the need to do mobile uh, uh, diagnostics and monitoring. In fact. In 2003, I helped on a NASA project building a black box for astronauts. It was this large sort of device called the C-Pod, developed by Greg Kovacs and other engineers at Stanford and NASA Ames. We tested that out in the desert of the Atacama uh, Desert of Chile and, 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 and diving on some of the highest lakes in Bolivia to show that you can start to measure physiology and transmit that. Those sorts of big kludgy, you know, relatively expensive devices now fit on your Fitbit or your smartwatch. So we have entered this age of, of being able to measure, measure physiology. But, you know, in terms of let's say going to, to Mars, we need to think about what are the countermeasures we could do? Uh, some of them are addressing uh, our cardiovascular system. So there are ways to even induce what's called uh, lower body negative pressure. You go into a little bit of a sucking device that pulls you onto a treadmill while you're sort of in zero G to give you the weight of gravity, but also shifts the fluids in your body as gravity does. And that's been shown to be helpful also in sort of engaging the muscle and the bones. Uh, we've seen uh, the immune system shift uh, in space, and there's both in vivo and in vitro work looking at how T cells and the stresses of space flight affect the immune system, which might be an issue, particularly if you're exposed to radiation at higher levels, which can give you a higher uh, likelihood of cancer. There's the uh, crew issues, you know, being in a tight environment uh, the size of a of a large RV, uh, uh, even for uh, a couple of weeks, is stressful. Think about doing that in the context of going very far away to Mars, where the time delay in terms of communication is is uh, I, I believe it's eight, eight seconds or, or more, or it could be eight minutes. I might have to I'll check. I have to check my physics. So you know, communication becomes challenging, um, and uh, you know, as we talk about final frontiers, the ability to invent and, and innovate in that space does have translations to our earthbound health and medicine as well. I very much appreciate you pointing out that a, uh, a pediatric oncology patient can grow up and, you know, go on one of these missions. And uh, it means that many more people can in the framework of they've had chronic diseases or they in, in the past have had a serious disease. And of course, you know, the baby boomers are getting older and they finally say, oh, see, I want to go to Mexico. I want to go to Paris. I want to go to, could they go to space? What, what prevents, what's too old to go to space? Well, it's no longer, you don't need to have the quote unquote right stuff. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, a, a month or so ago, Blue Origin flew uh, Shatner, William Shatner, Captain Kirk at the age of 90. He was on that mission. I think he pulled they pulled three or four G's on their way up and the way back. Uh, so uh, he's gone where no 90-year-old has gone before. Um, uh, a, a early 
uh, a pioneer of, of aerospace uh, and flight. Um, uh, f- her name is Funk. Uh, was supposed to be an astronaut, but because of her uh, female sex, uh, apparently didn't get uh, up selected back in the '60s. She got to fly, and, and she's in her 80s. So I think uh, you know, especially zero G can be kinder on our bones and muscles if you're if you're doing it for a short period of time. Uh, but I think we're going to see that you know even into the future, if we're going to really expand human to humans to long term life on Mars and maybe beyond that, we might see genetic engineering play a role to adapt and have a new forms of evolution that uh, will mean our our, sh- our children's children and children who who live and thrive in Mars and beyond will have uh, almost a different genetics to to help accelerate adaption to those environments. So there's lots of interesting. Uh, pieces to that challenge, and and uh, because spaceflight is opening up, it, it may not be so unlikely that in um, ten twenty years, uh, for a hundred thousand dollars or or maybe less, you might get a short flight, or maybe you get to spend a vacation in low Earth orbit on a on a space station, which might be spinning to give you half or one G. So uh, the science fiction movies are are coming uh, forward in in ways faster than we might have imagined. So space can be for everybody, and and there's room for the first cat. Uh, there's room for the first cat, and I would, you know, urge folks who are who are, are listening and interested, you know, follow along, you know, save your pennies. You might get a chance to fly, and then, uh, you know, organizations that are moving quickly, like SpaceX, are looking to get to the to the Mars. And we have NASA with the Artemis project. I know a couple of the astronauts who are are geared up to to hopefully be back to Moon in the next uh, few years. Um, it's going to open up a lot of new possibilities, challenge technologies, whether it's the next generation wearables. Uh, new sensors, new countermeasures to keep you know astronauts healthy in orbit or on on Moon or Mars uh, will translate to to better hopefully health and physiology here on on Spaceship Earth. Well, very exciting. Thanks, thanks, Daniel. Okay, keep looking up. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.